Science Friday is supported by Progressive. Now, most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Plato. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire. You've got to admit that when you hear Nat King Cole sing this song, it's probably the only time all year you think about chestnuts, either the roastable delicacy or the chestnut trees themselves. And you know that's not surprising. The American chestnut tree once towered over the forests of the eastern U.S., growing over 100 feet tall and 12 feet wide. And there were lots of them. So many, people like to say, a squirrel could go from New England to Georgia, leaping chestnut to chestnut without ever touching the ground. But then an invasive fungus wiped them all out. Billions of trees gone in the span of a single generation. Now, decades later, people are trying to bring them back, using science to resurrect those old giants. But not everybody is happy about it. Last year, reporter Shayla Farzan and Johanna Mayer brought us this story of the vanishing chestnut tree. Back when there were still American chestnuts, every year the trees produced baskets of rich sweet nuts, each one encased in a spiny jacket. You could eat them right off the tree or grind them up into flour or even cook them into toasty little snacks. People just adore these trees. I've heard people talk about it being, you know, the people's tree, our tree. Susan Frankel is the author of American Chestnut, The Life, Death, and Rebirth of a Perfect Tree. She says for a lot of people, especially in Appalachia, this tree held a treasured place in their lives. It really was like a member of the family. Um, And when the trees started to disappear, You know, people wept over them. People had pictures in the family scrapbooks of the trees that they would visit each fall to harvest nuts from. And from an industry perspective, the American chestnut was a dream, too. The lumber was light, made it a lot cheaper to ship. And it was rot resistant, thanks to the high tannin content. And by the late 1800s, Americans were making just about everything out of chestnut. Railroad ties, telegraph poles, church pews, pianos. It really furnished people's lives cradle to grave. People made cradles out of it. They made coffins out of it. But one summer day in 1904, a forester named Herman Merkel was strolling the grounds at the Bronx Zoo when he noticed something strange. The leaves on one of the chestnut trees were wilted. And when he looked closer, he saw the branches were covered in tiny orange specks. Merkel didn't know it at the time, but those little dots were from a fungus native to East Asia. 
No one knows exactly when or how the fungus got to the U.S., but general consensus is that it hitched a ride with a different chestnut species from Japan. And once it landed, it spread. Fast. In 1908, just four years after Herman first noticed those wilted trees, the New York Times ran an article announcing, quote, chestnut trees are doomed. By 1912, all the chestnuts in New York City were dead. And over the next few years, the fungus spread to Pennsylvania and North Carolina and Georgia and Tennessee. By the 1950s, the blight had effectively finished off all the American chestnuts. The fungus spreads through tiny spores that enter the tree through a wound or a little crack in the bark. And then it basically strangles the tree, siphoning off water and nutrients until the tree is dead. Well, mostly dead. Because this fungus doesn't attack the roots, so chestnuts can keep on sending up shoots, which get to a certain size, before eventually the fungus kills them again. And on and on. You can still find thousands and thousands of these small sprouts in the understory, most of them blighted. And again, um, you know, because they're these sprouts and they're not producing chest, most of them are not producing chestnuts anymore, we call them functionally extinct. Sarah Fitzsimmons is the Director of Restoration with the American Chestnut Foundation, a nonprofit that's been trying to bring this species back since the 1980s. But people have been trying to save the chestnut for much longer, really since the blight first landed. First, people tried walling off the fungus. New York and New Jersey's chestnuts were clearly goners. And in Pennsylvania, the whole eastern part of the state, east of the Susquehanna River, was a lost cause. But west of the river was looking pretty good. So they came up with a plan to cut down vast swaths of trees, create a kind of fire break. Except by the time they finished game planning, the fungus had already jumped the river. Strike one. Another option, don't stop the fungus, fix the tree. The American chestnut was basically helpless in the face of the blight, but the Chinese chestnut, it's resistant. So what if you combined the two? It's called backcrossing, creating a hybrid, then breeding that hybrid again and again with a target species. The idea is to make a tree that's just like an American chestnut, but still has some Chinese chestnut genes that make it resistant to the blight. The problem with that plan? Chestnut trees take years to reach maturity. And plant breeding is really slow when you're working on that kind of timeline. It just wasn't sustainable. Strike two. Then there was the nuclear option. There was irradiation experiments. That was one of my favorite. It started in the 50s, back when nuclear radiation was on everyone's mind. The idea was that if you irradiated enough chestnut seeds, you'll induce a bunch of mutations. Much like, you know, a thousand monkeys at a thousand typewriters, um, you know, maybe we'll get a mutation that causes resistance in American chestnuts. Alas, none of the monkeys hit the typewriters. Strike three. Eventually, a team at the State University of New York landed on a new strategy, genetic engineering. It gave them a lot more control than traditional plant breeding. Instead of slowly working toward a lucky genetic combination, they could choose specific genes from other species and put them directly into the chestnut genome, creating a transgenic species. And in time, 
the Sunni scientists found just the fungus-fighting gene they needed in wheat. When they put that wheat gene in American chestnuts, the seedlings could ward off the fungus, as well as Chinese chestnuts. The team published that work almost a decade ago, back in 2013. But now, they're facing a new kind of hurdle. The previous ones were primarily scientific, and, and the current one is more political and, and social that we're now facing in, in getting these out into the forest. The first hurdle? Bureaucracy. There are three different federal agencies involved in this process. The U.S. Department of Agriculture is involved in approving genetically modified plants. The Environmental Protection Agency is studying the chestnut's possible environmental impact. And the Food and Drug Administration is in charge of reviewing the food safety of transgenic nuts. These agencies probably won't release their decisions before 2023 at the earliest. So... More than a century after that strange orange fungus was spotted in the Bronx, the American chestnut might be coming back. Except some people are wondering, is this even a good idea? It's sort of like, what's the rush? Why the push? Let's make sure we're acting in in the tree's best interest. Neil Patterson Jr. works at the Center for Native Peoples and the Environment at SUNY and is a member of the Tuscarora Nation. The Tuscarora are part of a group of six nations known as the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. Neil says the American chestnut once played an important role in their lives. The Haudenosaunee peoples extracted oil from the nuts or ground them up to make flour. The leaves were used for medicinal purposes, and the wood became the backbone of their longhouses. One of the arguments for restoring the American chestnut has been this idea that indigenous peoples could reintegrate it into their traditions. But Neil says he's morally opposed to planting transgenic chestnuts in the wild. He's worried they could affect the forest ecosystem in unexpected ways. And what then? One of the concerns that I'm I'm slowly trying to understand is the potential to, to recall this technology at some point in the future. The people trying to restore the American chestnut say a lot of work is going into ensuring the trees are ready for release. There's the long governmental review process and a lot of research to back it up. Researchers have studied how the transgenic trees would affect bees, the soil, even tadpoles and water, and they haven't found any adverse effects. But Neil says even beyond the specific environmental concerns is a deeper question. Whether we should try to restore the chestnut tree just because we can. In other words, should we meddle with the earth? The people who want to preserve the chestnut argue we should. People created this problem. People should fix it. But these kinds of fundamental philosophical questions are the hardest to answer. In October, Neil Patterson and about a dozen other indigenous people went to pick chestnuts in a small town in upstate New York. The trees were planted about 20 years ago by volunteers from the American Chestnut Foundation. They're not hybrids, not transgenic trees. They're the original. And even though they're struggling with the blight, some trees were just big enough to actually produce nuts. For most of those on the outing that October day, it was their first time picking chestnuts, feeling the spiny burrs prick their fingers. And and then it sort of hit me at at some point to think about this as perhaps the last time uh, Haudenosaunee people will 
um, gather uh, what we can say for, for, for fairly certain is our, our non-transgenic uh, American chestnut. Neil says over the years, some of the history of this tree has been lost. The blight arrived at a time when indigenous children were being sent to boarding schools, told not to speak their native languages. He says some nations don't even have a word in their language for chestnut anymore. Others, like the Tuscarora, are rediscovering it. In my own language, chicas, um, chicas uh, is how we say chestnut uh, in Tuscarora. So I've been making it a habit to, when I see a chestnut, call it its real name, um, the name that it was uh, meant to hear, chicas. Now, he says, they're starting to think about what to call this new transgenic chestnut, trying to figure out where it fits in. That story was produced by Shayla Farzan and Johanna Mayer, along with Ella Fetter. We have to take a break, and when we come back, what happens when a biologist and an artist conspire inside a shimmering world shaped by DNA? Stay with us. Carnegie Hall has welcomed a dizzying array of performers. To have Andy Kaufman, Frank Zappa, and Birkett Nielsen and Horowitz on the same stage it becomes this kaleidoscope of our history. I'm Jessica Vosk. Join me for the new podcast, If This Hall Could Talk. It's all about our unique cultural history, as witnessed by one of New York's most beloved institutions, Carnegie Hall. Listen now, wherever you get podcasts. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Plato. Imagine walking into an art museum and seeing scientific data but not the usual graphs or the diagrams. Think instead in the form of animated, swirling shapes, gleaming silver DNA strands, hints of green landscapes and blue, cloudy skies. All of this with an eerie instrumental soundtrack that is itself data. Producer Christy Taylor talked to the artist-scientist duo behind something just like that, and she's here to tell us about it. Hi there, Christy. Hey there, Ira. Okay, so you showed me the art we're talking about. It really is very unexpected and beautiful, and I mentioned that there's something that looks like DNA, but what's the science in there? Yeah, the art we're looking at today is part of a project called Sticky Settings, which is brought to you by biophysicist Adam Lamson and artist Laura Splann. For those listening at home, we do more images on our website for you to take a look at, sciencefriday.com slash sticky art. And to get back to your question, Ira, Adam's research is all about DNA, how it arranges itself inside the cell, the way it curls around different proteins and forms different shapes, and how it even sticks to itself. Hmm. And that affects all kinds of stuff, like what kind of cell it is, what genes are turned on, that kind of hugely important stuff, right? Right. And this is something that's not necessarily well understood yet, but Adam and Laura teamed up to work on different ways of visualizing these sticky arrangements. And the result has been pieces that include everything from tapestries to music to some of those stunning animations that you're looking at right now. Here's Laura, the artist, describing one of these animations, which she calls Baroque Bodies Ambient Portals. So with the Baroque Bodies ambient portals animation, the first thing you see is this kind of sphere-like form on this black field um, that has some colors that you can't quite make out where they're coming from. 
And inside the sphere, there is um, a series of kind of spiral-like forms that are moving slowly themselves. And wrapped around those forms is this kind of DNA-looking structure. And all of that is inside this, this undulating membrane. And um, the membrane itself kind of has some color and light that's being reflected off of it that um, as you get closer, um, you can kind of see more um, kind of identifiable imagery um, that eventually kind of materializes into a landscape as the animation itself zooms in to reveal reflections on these um, what are actually protein um, surfaces on the inside of what is actually a nucleosome model. Adam, we've been referring to all of the sort of traces of DNA in the art Laura's made, but you're the one actually studying DNA. Tell us more about your research. I write uh, scientific code uh, in order to model how DNA reorganizes inside of our cell. DNA usually comes in this form known as chromatin inside of our cells, which is the DNA gets wrapped around these proteins. And then you have the DNA and these proteins interacting with each other that organizes everything very regularly inside of our cells. Uh, the interesting thing about that is that we've learned that when DNA becomes close in proximity, um, or there's different parts of the DNA, that when they come together spatially, even though they might be separated by a lot of DNA in between two genes, you can upregulate the, the gene expression. You can get more RNA coming out of these two genes together than if they were uh, separated. And likewise, we can also pack uh, DNA away so that no genes are being expressed in certain portions of our genome. So it turns out that it's one of the main ways that uh, cells are able to decide which genes get expressed in our uh, cells versus um, which are silenced. And that's the kind of thing that helps determine whether a cell becomes a bone cell or an eye cell, or is it something more complicated than that? Every single cell in our body has the DNA to make any other cell. This is why stem cell research has, is so fascinating, is, is that in order to turn a stem cell into one type of cell, let's say a bone cell or a liver cell versus an, uh, an eye cell, you have to turn off certain genes and turn on others. The cells have to make this decision, and they do that by, by packing away the DNA. Laura, one of the shapes Adam's data takes is these things called contact maps, which are graphs of all these points where a strand of DNA may be touching itself, kind of like a tangled up piece of string. What did your mind go through to start turning these graphs, these contact maps, into art? We were introduced to each other and kind of shared our work with each other. And um, it, it really was quite immediate that I started to think of ideas of ways that we might collaborate um, and, and think about what those forms might be. Um, for example, when Adam was explaining his research to me, he, he started um, pretty early by showing me those contact map visualizations. And the, the patterns in, in those contact maps reminded me of patterns um, that I'd created using biometric data in some previous work, um, actually textiles work. And so I immediately knew that I wanted to create weavings out of those contact maps. And they actually are quite direct depictions of Adam's 
visualizations um, that are woven on a computerized jacquard loom. We're talking about giant woven squares with diagonal lines running through them and then sort of these other little dots all around, kind of like a field of stars with different color schemes. What was it like to have this tactile, colorful, gigantic graph to work with? So when I first started on my scientific project, I had to learn how to interpret these these contact maps because they gave you the entire spatial information, but in kind of an obtuse way, right? There's there's some kind of bending and and mixing of like the DNA uh, thread in space. The translation is not clear. And then I remember one day after a few discussions with Laura, she brought in these these weavings, and it's the biggest contact map that I had ever seen. Um, it was just on a table, and I could put my hands on it. And I had looked at this this one picture for hours. I would say, um, you know, trying to to represent it as best as I could. And and actually seeing this this large, I, I noticed that there was this stripe running along uh, at a forty five degree angle from from the the diagonal. And in that moment, it was very clear to me that oh, this this particular section of my filament was in the center. It was surrounded by all these other uh, sections of the DNA. And, and this told me a lot more about the overall configuration that I had just never seen. I had, I had started to understand how loops uh, look uh, inside of my simulations or what are known as hairpin configurations. But this was the first time I had like an intuitive understanding of like where spatially it was located to the rest of all these other uh, beads in the entire simulation that I had, I had run. You could just, I, I got really excited and uh, <laughs> uh, everyone in the room was like, wow, uh, they were, they were, they had like almost kind of like uh, the look of a parent um, on, on, of, on Christmas when the, the child has just seen something for the first time or like, uh, get or just, <laughs> yeah. And it's one thing to have literal data made into art, but Laura, let's go back to this animation that you were describing earlier. It's like this otherworldly, alien, immersive experience. What went into that? So Ambient Portals was um, an animation where I was kind of um, interested in putting aside the science a bit and allowing the work <laughs> to kind of um, to kind of move into a more science fiction space. Um, but I did begin those animations with an actual uh, nucleosome model that is from the protein databank. So it is a nucleosome model that um, has the eight histone proteins on the inside and DNA wrapping around them. And then taking that model and applying a kind of membrane that represented this bead metaphor around it. And then uh, thinking about how I might kind of transcend the science of the model um, if you will, and allow for other kind of opportunities for interpretation um, or narrative to, to come into this. And uh, so that's where I started to play with um, applying these reflective materials to the proteins and the DNA, and then thinking about, well, what, what is going to be reflected? And um, with the project, we were playing with this idea of stickiness that relates to his simulations and models. Um, but, you know, we were also thinking a lot about 
computational biology and tools and technologies used in that and thinking about um, this idea of remembered user user settings in graphical user interfaces or GUIs in software. And so, you know, one of the things that we talked about with, with the project and the kind of um, focus of it was exploring how we might reconnect the computational GUI with the biological GUI-ness. And, and so in thinking of that, I, I started to um, kind of go this direction of, of thinking about um, in, environmental influences around the expression of genes. And um, so I wanted to use AI to, to generate these environments that are kind of like these idyllic landscapes um, that uh, you can never quite get a good look at in the animations because it's always zooming in and out and kind of wandering through the inside of, of the nucleosome. Um, you know, the more, the closer you look, the more you learn, the more you find, the more you realize there is to still learn and still discover. Lauren, Adam, you also turned this data about DNA into music. What are we hearing? What's going on? So essentially the soundscapes were composed by converting sound files that Adam generated from his simulations into MIDI tracks. And that um, on some level is, is the sound of these molecular bodies contacting each other. And um, it, it's kind of situated in this liminal space that's biological and technological at the same time. You could kind of hear these like goopy, drippy sounds that happen at the same time as some of these clicky and beepy technological sounds. And, you know, I really, I really loved the idea of using sound for this because, um, you know, with sound, it's, it's materiality is kind of called into question more easily. And you can't, you know, you can't see it, you can't locate it. Um, and there's a really nice destabilization that, that happens with sound. So when you hear a lot more activity going on in the uh, sound file, it means that this filament that I'm modeling has started to clump up, has started to become smaller, more condensed, uh, kind of what would happen inside of your, your cell when you're trying to either turn off a gene or, or bring a bunch of genes together. So you'll sometimes hear that, you know, there's only one or two things going on at once. Um, and that means that you're kind of in this, this stretched out kind of state. Um, but then as, as time goes on, you start to hear more and more and more building on top of one another. And that's telling you how um, the, the filament is coming together and, um, and collapsing in on itself. Just a quick reminder that this is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. I'm Christy Taylor talking with artist Laura Splann and biophysicist Adam Lamson about their unique science and arts collaboration. How are lay people non-scientists who have no idea what's going on, how are they responding to these works? I've been blown away by how many people just say, wow, that's beautiful. And most of the time, you, you will only see these kinds of patterns and shapes and forms in scientific papers. The first statement they make is like, wow, these are beautiful. You tell them like, yeah, this is from my data. And, they're, and the immediate next question without even thinking is like, oh, so what does this mean? And And that is the you know, jumping off part where I get really excited and be like, okay, so let me tell you. <laughs> and I've had to 
come up with this this metaphor of oh imagine a book that has just been laid out in a single long line that's your dna and then you're crumpling it all up uh and then you spray super glue on it and then you cut out all the periods and now you can look at like oh sentence from chapter one is close to sentence sentence from chapter five right that tells you that though even those those things are not related uh or not close to each other in the story they were close to each other in space um so that was like a really useful uh, analogy and then people start to to come up with their own questions that i hadn't thought about um it really does play to to the human's curiosity of like you see something that's interesting and then you can't help but ask Ooh, what does this mean okay one more time with this animation laura i'm looking at it it's gorgeous it's beautiful it's otherworldly there are hints of landscapes it's a shimmering swirling experience and i'm thinking wow this beauty lives in my own body in my dna was that part of the goal of this project to help people kind of experience the wonders of their own biology? Yeah. So the the animations were a really great opportunity to explore all those different layers um, and all the different complexity of our bodies, but also the beauty of that. And the and I really wanted to kind of create a relationship or a sensation of wonder around that. Um, you know, it can, there can be a sensation of overwhelm that's created when you start to think about the complexity of biology, but I'm kind of more interested in evoking a sense of wonder. And um, so, yeah, I, I really wanted to have there be this, this aesthetic experience where um, there was just kind of an infinite space to inspect and investigate and be curious about. And so, you know, the nucleosome itself and, and the proteins and the DNA, um, they, you know, they presented this kind of wonderfully, you know, symmetrical, um, almost celestial body that I was placing in this kind of cosmic space um, that, you know, I wanted to, to kind of play with the movement and um, the lighting and, you know, the camera angles in a way that uh, created a sense of intimacy that was actually quite inviting and seductive rather than alienating. Laura, Adam, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you for having us. Dr. Adam Lamson is a fellow in biophysical modeling at the Flatiron Institute in New York. And Laura Splann is a Brooklyn-based multimedia artist. I'm Christy Taylor. Thank you, Christy. And again, you can see some of the really incredible work from Laura and Adam on our website, sciencefriday.com slash stickyart, sciencefriday.com slash stickyart. We have to take a break. And when we come back, efforts to save the once abundant American chestnut, why chestnuts roasting on an open fire are harder to come by. Stay with us. Each election season, political memoirs abound, doorstops that sometimes divulge more than intended. No matter how diligently they present themselves in the most electable light, they always reveal themselves, their insecurities, their fears, their ambitions. How to read a Politico on this week's On the Media from WNYC. Find On the Media wherever you get your podcasts. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Plato. Something that may seem familiar this time of the year, 
What is it? You open up a holiday card and out pours a little unexpected surprise, glitter. And that glitter will seemingly be with us forever, hugging your sweater, covering the floor. But glitter doesn't just stop there. It washes down the drain, travels into the sewage system and the waterways. And since it's made from microplastics, you know it's never going away. So as it turns out, all that glitters is not gold or even biodegradable. But what if you could make glitter that was biodegradable? Sylvia Vignolini, professor of chemistry at the University of Cambridge, has done that. Developed eco-friendly glitter made out of plants. Professor Vignolini, thanks for being with us today. Welcome to Science Friday. Thank you for the invite. Tell us why exactly glitter is so bad for the environment. The glitter itself is a composite material. So you have a layer of metal, and then on top of it, the very cheap one, you have a layer of plastic, that is where you embed the, some, some pigmentation. And the combined effect of this metal layer with this uh, top layer that has this pigmentation gives you this glittery effect, this metallic effect. This is a typical example of a macroplastic because the size around the size of few tens of microns depending on what type of glitter you consider, but the most, uh, the, the one that are most available and the one most widespread often have this type of, uh, this type of problema. You know, the, there is a lot of glitter that's marketed as biodegradable or eco-glitter. What's in that stuff? This is actually a little bit better because instead of having a plastic like a, like that is not degradable, you, you might find some bioplastics, but you still have the problem of this uh, multiple layering so you have still a material that is a composite and therefore you have challenges in recycling especially if you don't recycle it properly it'd be hard to recycle glitter but if even if you wanted to you can't do it yes because it ends up on everywhere <laughs> and what about mica it's it's also sparkly and it's in a lot of makeup and other beauty products is that better for the environment Mica is not necessarily bad itself. You know, the only problem of mica is the way that is resourced. So that if you have a ethically resourced mica, because often is they exploit child labor to produce mica. But obviously, like company and they are becoming more and more aware, so they try to resource it in a in more uh, you know in ethical ways. But they still have a little bit the 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 problem that is a highly in, energy-intensive uh, process because you really need to make uh, really small flakes out of, uh, of rocks at the end, like of inorganic materials. But it's based on mica, but it's not only mica, yes? So mica is one of the layers of the component. On top of the mica, you might have other materials, and that often you also have plastics, polymers. Who thought that glitter was so complex to make? In order to understand why it's complex to make them, it's important to understand the phenomenon that is behind uh, what makes glitter glittery. So um, generally, when you have a coloration, a color, that like the color that you use to, to paint a wall or to color your clothes, these are traditional pigments. And this pigment, uh, essentially, the, the coloration, the appearance, depends on the chemical characteristic of the material that you have. But the color doesn't change in function of the angle. So in order to have this uh, metallic sparkling effect, 
you can do in two ways. One is to use a metal because metals, they are shiny. And the way that they reflect light with respect to pigment, it's, it's really different. That's why also you can have a mirror. They, they behave as a mirror metals. Another way is what you call structural colors. They don't come from the interaction of the light with the chemical characteristic of the material, but with the physical characteristic of the material. That's, that's like butterfly wings, things like that. Exactly, exactly. So you need to have a, a structure on the order of a few hundreds of nanometers that interact with the light with a phenomenon that is called interference. And this gives rise to this uh, vivid uh, color that are really metallic and really shiny. So let's talk about your achievement now. With, given the background of all of this glitter, you've made a new type of glitter that avoids some of those environmental issues using cellulose from wood pulp. What made you think to try and make glitter from plants? Okay. So we saw in nature that cellulose can be used to make colors. That was really our my inspiration when I started to work on this system, uh, if you want, almost uh, 10 years ago. In fact, we discovered that there are several types of plants that can use the cellulose fiber that are the same fiber that we, that we talk about, that we ha you have a diet that is rich of fibers. So we have observed in nature this type of coloring in several types of plants, fruits, but also leaves. So, and it's a really common architecture and it's a trick that plants use to make color when they cannot make it with pigmentation. So we thought, okay, plants can do it. Maybe we can try ourselves <laughs> as well. So, so how did you extract the cellulose and make it into glitter? So what, what we use from the cellulose is from wood pulp or any type of plant's biomass that can be, be also like, we also extracted from um, grape skin that it's a, uh, from the waste from wine industry, or we can also extract it from cotton linters that are the piece of cotton that comes from, uh, that are, cannot be interwoven into yarn. And all these small bits and pieces of cellulose, you can extract what you call the crystalline part. So we call them, it's a type of material that we call cellulose nanocrystal. And uh, nicely enough, when you use this material and you, and you, you put them in water, in the right condition, they can behave as so-called liquid crystals. So the same type of chemical that you have in computer display to make uh, to make the display. These particles they have a similar behavior. So they can form layer structures that are also similar to what you see in the plants that can interact with light to create this coloration. So we so at the end we simply use this this part of the cellulose and exploit this principle that is a spontaneous process that the material does. So it's called self-assembly. Hmm. But it, is it as sparkly as the real stuff, as the synthetic? Yes, it is really sparkly because it's, um, it's similar. The concept is the same of the one that you see in the butterfly wing or in the feathers of a peacock. Now the color doesn't depend on the material, but depends on the physical structure. As soon as you are able to physically structure the material in the right way, independently from the material that you use, the chemical composition, you can get really bright color. So what needs to happen before this glitter goes from your lab onto my shelf? Well, that's lots needs to happen. So we, we got lots of interest also the, from the media, and then obviously many companies contacted us. Our 
technology, if you want, is based on this self-assembly. And, uh, and this self-assembly mechanism, especially using biomaterial, is not really well developed in industry as a process because it has all some disadvantages. It is slow with respect to conventional manufacturing methods that are used now to make pigment and glitter. It's a bit slower. And therefore, as a technology, it's a little bit disruptive with, with respect to what is present today. So you first need to convince <laughs> the, the company, the manufacturing company, that it's actually a process that it's economically viable because at the end of the day it's sad to say but I don't know how many people would be happy to pay lots of money for buying glitter that is more sustainable. Yeah, so you have to bring the price down and what when you make it. Exactly, you need to make the material that is uh, compelling also from a point of view of economic comp- point of view. And the raw material is is not expensive because it's cellulose itself and actually the fact that you can get it from waste, it makes it even more attractive. But the processing at the moment is expensive. And in order to, you know, in order to really being able to sell it on a commercial level, there is a lot of more uh, technical challenges that needs to be addressed in in, in question of, of making it, uh, of produ- producing it on a really large scale. Well, New Year's Eve isn't too far off, where we'll see confetti and streamers in Times Square and all over the world. Now, here's a question. Is it possible to make all this streaming stuff biodegradable? Why not? Last year, we heard about biodegradable glitter. Yeah, it is possible. The question is, like, again, it's a question of will and question of how much uh, people that want to also to invest and they are ready to to change this technology for something that is a little bit more sustainable. Obviously, you know, it's always, I think it's also always important to, re- to remember that uh, you are always creating an impact with what you, you dispersed around, yes? So you produce more waste. It's true that it's, even if it's a biodegradable, it's, a, it's better, but it's still going to take some time to, to degrade. Yes, and it's still going to probably affect the, envi- the environment that you have around. So even if you have a material that is uh, essentially inert, like cellulose, if you imagine to, and it's, and it's degraded by many different microorganisms, if you accumulate large amount, a large mass of one specific material in a, spe- in a place, you might alterate the ecosystem of that specific, uh, of that specific area you will have an environmental impact. So my suggestion is that we shouldn't be, we shouldn't live a life of uh, where we we restrain ourselves in everything, but we should also be a little bit more aware that everything that we do is impacting our environment and we should try to limit to what is really necessary and trying to, you know, trying to be more, uh, or, you know, to use it, but in special occasion, and not uh, be everything that is a consumer that then it goes in the bin and and because it's written bio, we are we are happy with it and we we don't think about it anymore. Well, Dr. Vignolini, we wish you great success and hopefully uh, next New Year's Eve we'll be able to see biodegradable confetti, glitter, streamers, all that kind of stuff. Thank you for taking time to be with us today. Thank you. Have a nice evening. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. 
This time of the year, it's not uncommon to see little sprigs of greenery hanging at a holiday party. You know what I'm talking about. Of course, it's mistletoe, waiting for someone to be kissed beneath it. The amorous life of this indoor mistletoe is a lot cheerier than what mistletoe does in the wild. You see, the plant that prompts that kiss is actually a parasite feeding off other plants. Here to tell us more about this plant and what it's up to the other 11 months of the year is my guest, Dr. Josh Durr, Associate Professor of Biological Science at Cal State Fullerton. Welcome to Science Friday. Thanks for having me. Now, I consider myself a bit of a plant geek, but I was even surprised to hear about parasitic plants. I didn't know there was such a thing. Yeah, parasitic plants are fascinating. Tell us about uh, what makes this plant a parasitic plant. What, what makes mistletoe a parasite? Well, so mistletoes attach onto the branches of other shrubs and trees, and they steal mostly water, but some also steal nutrients and sugars, and they rely on their hosts in order to complete their life cycle. They've got really specialized modified roots in order to help them attach and get into the host's vascular tissue. And they also have specialized dispersal mechanisms to get the seeds to the next tree. You can imagine it's hard to get from one tree to another without some help. You make this sound like it's a scary plant to be standing under. It's not really. These parasites do steal water and nutrients from their hosts, but they don't usually damage the trees uh, enough to kill them unless the infestation is bad. And they're not going to really hurt you unless you eat them. A lot of them are poisonous. I love to grow plants. I grow orchids and other kinds of plants, tough plants. How tough would it be for me to grow my own mistletoe at home? Um, it'd be pretty challenging. You'd first need to have a, a suitable host. And once you've got a host, you'll need to establish an infection. And you can do that. You can put seeds of a mistletoe onto the branches of your tree. But mistletoes, at least the ones we use in our decorations, grow very slowly. They take several years to establish an infection. And then if you're going to be harvesting it, you're going to not want to destroy the, the mistletoe by taking all of it. Right. Uh, to tell us how mistletoe got associated. This plant that you, you use the word infection associated with it because it's a parasite. How it could get in, you know, involved with being a loving thing if it's a parasite? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, mistletoe has a long history in mythology and lore. It's featured in stories uh, uh, from Norse mythology and Greek mythology, and the Druids revered it as a sacred plant. It traces its history as a Christmas decoration back to pagan rites in pre-Christian Europe, and uh it was one of the few green things available in the winter. And so people would bring it in as a reminder of spring, and it became associated with fertility. And for that reason, it is also used in, in uh, that tradition you mentioned at the start of this segment, uh, kissing under the mistletoe. Hmm. How did you get started with studying mistletoe? It's not something I would think, you know. You did your PhD yeah. thesis on this, did you not? Um, I worked on mistletoes for my master's, master's. Um, but I was interested in mistletoes and parasitic plants because of their specialization and how they have this 
alternative life history of stealing resources, but also being um, really important ecologically. And uh, so I've continued to work on it since getting my PhD. And did, did I you find that, did you find a, a, your favorite? Do you have a favorite one? Sure. So I really like dwarf mistletoes. They have a very specialized seed dispersal mechanism where they launch their seeds out of the fruit uh, all on their own. And those seeds then attach into the host. And the, the mistletoe actually grows for several years inside of the host, much like an alien infesting someone. And when they're ready to reproduce, they burst out of the stem oh. and they've got these... Um, small, tiny flowers, and then they make their fruits and launch those fruits to the next tree. Launch them pretty far, pretty fast? They can launch um, up to 30 meters or so. Have you ever seen one bursting out of the tree? I have. Sometimes when they're just right, you can like tap them a little bit and you can get them to launch the seeds. Wow. No wonder you're so interested in it. It's fascinating. I wish you good luck on, on, on your career studying mistletoe. Thank you. Josh Durr, Associate Professor of Biological Sciences at Cal State Fullerton. And that about wraps up Gift Wraps, this show in our holiday package. If you missed any part of this program, you'd like to hear it again, subscribe to our podcasts or ask your smart speaker to play Science Friday. You can, of course, say hi to us all week on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or you can contact us the old-fashioned way, sci-fi at sciencefriday.com. Have a great holiday weekend. We'll see you next week. I'm Ira Flato.